In chapter 11, we are transported from one bad thing to the next, often caught in this back and forth as political powers, because that's what they are, continually fight for dominance. And it is exhausting just to read. But I can't help but think that maybe some of us can relate I mean, is anyone here maybe tired of the constant conflict of our own times? Does anyone feel like the news is a daily grind? A confusing mess, endless arguing, one disaster after another. When is it going to stop? I feel myself asking that. Or when do we just like get to catch our breath? We might have thought, you know, once last Tuesday, whatever that was, was over, we'd get a breath get a chance to take our breath, but we didn't. We probably won't for the future. And if you find yourself in this place, then Daniel 11 might have more to say to us and even our current circumstances than we might have previously thought. Because in the midst of a world in turmoil, many, I feel like this, feel caught in the crossfire, caught between nations in tension or political parties in conflict or neighbors at odds, whatever it might be. And Daniel 11 is about being caught in the crossfire. Because to read this chapter well, one of the first things we have to see is that is the perspective it's told from. Daniel 11 is told as though you're standing in the middle of Israel. It's why some of the history is included, some of the history isn't included. But we read these, you know, these vague kings of the north and these vague kings of the south as they wage a constant battle vying for power. But what you have to understand is that Israel is stuck right in the middle, the kingdoms of the north and the kingdoms of the south. And so this this vision, which was promised to come in chapter 10, is now given to Daniel. It's given about three years after the Israelites had started to return to the land. They had hoped that returning to the land meant that it'd be the beginning of prosperity and peace. But what is revealed to Daniel, what's so disconcerting, is that this time of exile seems to continue even then, and in fact, continue until the end of time. We're going to cover 11 through 12 for this morning. And while this vision overlaps a lot of the same history of the visions of 2, 7, and 8, and some of it will feel like overlap, this vision here in Daniel 11 through 12, 4, it's it's the last, it's the longest, and it is the most detailed This report of what's to come for the people of God is meant to make this people wise. It calls them to action so that they will know how to live in light of the coming future. And while much of this is history from our vantage point, it still invites us as well to be wise, to know the times, to know the end, and to know how to live in between. Because we find, what we'll find is that the threat of God's people caught in the crossfire isn't just to be a casualty of war, but to be seduced away from faithfulness to God. And so if we're going to be like, if we're going to be wise, we need to see at least three things from this passage. And the first is this, the futility of worldly powers. Daniel eleven two through 20. These first 19 verses, they cover roughly 350 years of history and of conquest. Of course, it doesn't cover everything, but what it covers is incredibly accurate in its depiction. Verse two, it's gonna tell us of some kings from Persia, including Xerxes, who, who was the king of the book of Esther, uh, called Azoharis there. 
Then in verse three, a mighty king comes onto the scene who had great dominion, who does what he will. This is Alexander the Great. In chapter eight, he's, he's referred to as the goat. And he really was the, the goat, the greatest of all time. Thanks, thanks for the pity laugh. But, but as, Ale, as Alexander arises, as soon as he arises, his kingdom is broken into four kingdoms, into four kingdoms that he did not intend. And two of these kingdoms, two of the four, carry most of the weight, what's really talked about in verses five through 19. All right, and it fills in some of the gaps from chapter eight. But, so these two kingdoms are the north and the south, and Israel caught in the middle. Historically, we might consider the north as uh, the Seleucid kingdom. That's the name for it. And it was in the north region, Syria, Babylon, up in that area. The south kingdom, the Ptolemaic, was in the realm of Egypt. And these two kingdoms battle it out across the plains of Israel. And what follows is this endless sequence of conflicts, war, betrayals, political moves, which in themselves never seem to reach a conclusion. They never reach a conclusion. We could go through each one and identify their reference in history. You know, there's some you'd recognize, even Cleopatra makes an entrance into this. But as soon as you walk out the doors, I know you'll forget those details. I know that. But what I want us to see from this section is this repeated theme. The reason we have this litany is to, is to catch this repeated over and over pattern throughout history that no matter how great the kingdom is or brilliant their strategies of conquest, they never endure. They never endure. Repeated throughout this section is the word uh, but in English. And it reveals how every kingdom of man falls. It's repeated over at verse six. There's an alliance made with the marriage of the daughter of the king of the south. This is Berenice. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. Verse nine, the king of the north comes into the realm of the south, but shall return to his own land. Verse 12, he shall, verse 12 they shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Verse 14, the people shall rise against the south, but they shall fail. And then verse 16, 17, 18, 19, but over and over the kingdoms of man fail. Their endless strife is futile. It's like a fist fight on the Titanic. Each skirmish may matter, it may have a winner, but the ship's going down nonetheless. It's only temporal. So what's the implication for the people of God? I feel like we've probably said this over the many weeks going through Daniel. You know, it's a quote from Psalm 146 as well, but trust not in the kingdoms of man. Trust not in the kingdoms of man. And isn't this a good reminder to us in our own time to trust not in the kingdoms of man? But I want to take this a little bit further and look specifically at one verse, verse 14, right in the middle of all this chaos. Look here, look here with me, I'm going to read it. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Now, it's difficult to know what this vision or prophecy was that they were trying to bring to reality, but at the very least, what we see is that, that some people of God joined in this conflict in order to bring about some desired future, some vision. And in the context of Daniel, it's hard not to think about that as some vision of the kingdom of God itself. But the kingdom of God does not come 
through our own power. The kingdom of God doesn't come through our own power. Another way we might read this is to say, the ends don't justify the means. Have you ever heard that before? Because it can be such a temptation in our own day to have good desires. I mean, godly desires and godly hopes, but to seek them the wrong way. And that's what this verse is getting at. And let me be clear, this doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged in, in ways of contributing to our world. We should. Uh, Genesis 1.28 calls us to this type of work, whether it be uh, economically, politically, socially, whatever that might be, calls us to contribute to our world. But there's such a, such a distinction that you can't miss because our temptation, our temptation is the idea that if we get, if we get the, right, the right businesses, the right laws, the right leaders, the right whatever in place, then we can usher in this grand vision, that we can bring about the kingdom of God. But this too shall fail. For the kingdom of God does not come through worldly powers, strategies, or tactics. The kingdom of God is not just some future hope. It's a way of living according to God's design. Both the ends and the means matter. You don't just try to achieve it no matter what. There's a second implication, though, here for the people of God. One of the early church fathers, Jerome, he says that in this time, in this time described here, there was a conflict, and the people of God were divided into factions and parties. The very people of God were divided, some supporting the Seleucid king, some supporting the Ptolemaic. And these political alliances were tearing the people of God apart. And maybe it'd be easy for us to see how that could happen in our own day. With all the controversy and the fighting, people picking sides, wishing for the downfall of the other. Daniel's all about, right? All about trusting God over human kingdoms. That when kingdoms collide, God's kingdom wins. It's all about trusting God's kingdom over the kingdoms of man. But one of the symptoms, one of the symptoms that, that we could be, that people could be trusting in the kingdoms of the world a little bit too much is the enmity created within the people of God. You guys know what this looks like. I don't need to tell you. But not associating with believers because of certain views or positions, trashing other believers online, gloating over political victories, or responding in violence because of a loss. These and other actions are signs that allegiances may be misplaced. And if we are to be wise, we need to see we need to know the futility of human kingdoms and worldly powers and hold fast to God and his coming kingdom above all. Because this leads us to the second thing we need to see in this passage, the need for the people of God to stand firm and take action. Daniel eleven twenty one through 35. Verse 21 introduces us to someone who's known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and really and like the manifestation of God. Verse 21 says this, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And we, we met this person earlier in chapter eight. Uh, he was the, the little horn. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about Antiochus Epiphanes then. So um, I won't go into a ton of detail, but this whole section, this whole passage focuses on him and his relationship to the people of God. And, and we have to see a slight switch. Whereas the people of God 
were, were only in the crossfire, they now become caught in the crosshairs of a tyrant. Look with me at verses 29 through 31. It tells how, I'm gonna just sort of list through some of the things that happen. It tells how Antiochus attacks the south again. But in verse 30, these, these ships of Katim, meaning Rome, they come in and they intimidate him from finishing off Egypt. What happens is one of the generals draws a circle around Antiochus and says, don't leave this until you promise to go home. And so he does. But like a little kid who can't get what he wants, Antiochus takes his anger out on someone else. He takes his anger out on Jerusalem and the Holy Covenant during his return home. Verse 31 tells us that he profanes the temple and the fortress and sets up idol worship in the temple. History gives us a little more indication of what this means. It means he'll sentence to death anyone who, who circumcises their children, anyone who sacrifices to God, anyone who observes the Sabbath, anyone who just has scripture with him, a little scroll or a writing of scripture along a shawl, whatever it is, put to death immediately. One commentator says, summarizes these events this way. He says, in this reign of terror, it seems the only choice was to be a live pagan or a dead Israelite with no in-between. Because you see, the real danger isn't just persecution, it's also compromise. And we see this clearly in verses 32 through 35. Read these with me. He, that is Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Here we find this goal of this apocalyptic vision because the goal isn't simply that they would just know what's up ahead, but that they would know how to live in light of what's up ahead, to be wise. And this message is the same for us today for we have the same temptations of worldly compromise and need for the boldness to stand firm and take action. Antiochus here, he's pictured like this great deceiver, isn't he? Some probably thought they could hitch their wagon to him, get in league with Antiochus without compromising too much. Some might have been scared into compromising, while others were lured into compromising by greed and power. But those who know God act differently. It's said that these people stand firm and they take action, they're wise. And Daniel's doing such a unique thing, such a clever thing, in contrasting the ways of the kingdom and the ways of Antiochus. The the language gets at this a little bit, so let me nerd out with you a little for you a little bit. But verse 21, Antiochus, the beginning, he's introduced to us as someone who strongly took the kingdom by deception. So this language strongly took. It's the same language as stand firm. It's the same language. And then in verse 30, we read that Antiochus is one who took action against the Holy Covenant, just like the people of God are told to take action. But those who know God and live according to his kingdom act very different than Antiochus. 
Dave Helm, the one commentator, writes, what follows in verse 30 through 35 is not military action, the ways of Antiochus, but rather moral action. Verse 14, we should be clued into this, right? Verse 14, we already saw the negative description of those who take up violence as a way to accomplish the kingdom of God or to bring in some grand vision. And whereas Antiochus strongly takes the kingdom, those who know God can stand firm in God's kingdom wherever they are, no matter what kingdom of man may be in power. Those who know God can stand firmly in his kingdom no matter where they are. I mean, if you have the book of Daniel in your head, this sounds a little bit like Daniel in chapter one, doesn't it? And just like Daniel, these people are described as wise. From beginning to end, this book is about people who stand firm in God's kingdom no matter what kingdom reigns. Whether it's Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's the Jews under Antiochus, or whether it's any kingdom to come after that. So what does this look like? Looks like at least three things, probably 1,400, but at least three things. First, they live according to the kingdom of God, right? Antiochus was attacking everyone who followed God. He was killing them or enticing them away from godly living. But part of what it meant to stand firm was to pursue righteousness, to live according to the kingdom of God, no matter what, to commit to worship and holiness. This in and of itself was a defiant stance against a tyrant, even if it meant death, even if it meant death. And today we face the same threats of compromise in our broader culture. And we may not be facing the same threat of death, but the same enticements exist all the same. The same greed, the same violence, the same deceit, the same flattery, they tempt us just as they did then to compromise on faithfulness to God and his way, his holiness, his worship. It would be good of us to think through daily what are the ways that the world tempts us away from faithfulness to God. Second, second, they also lead others to righteousness. And this is so fascinating. Rather than military or violence, military might or violence, verse 33 says that they help others understand. They help others see what's going on to see the truth, to know what's happening. They encourage and challenge others to know God and follow his kingdom. But this isn't just about God, it's also about helping people to understand the times. You see, the people of God weren't disengaged, they were deeply engaged. They could see the ways that the world was pulling them away or the ways that they needed to step up. It's how Daniel knew that he was fine with the king calling him Belteshazzar, but he wasn't gonna eat certain things. How do we make those discerning judgments? How do we help others to see places we're compromising and where we're not, where we need to stand firm? These type of people know how to, under, they understand how to redemptively engage our world. For we are called to redemptively engage our world in every facet. So are you leading others to righteousness? And of course this means evangelism, but also just continual discipleship daily discipleship with one another. Because you notice that, that this requires more than one person. This isn't something you do on your own. But we lead one another in faithfully walking before God. Are you helping others to know our times and to know our eternal God? And then thirdly, they endure to the end. The kingdom of God does not come through 
worldly powers, the kingdom of God comes through suffering and being refined. Here the vision anticipates what's to come in chapter 12. It anticipates the very cross of Christ. But here in verse 33 through 35, we see that the wise will stumble or they'll die by sword or flame or they'll suffer plundering or captivity. And yet this this stumbling is meant to be a refining, a refining that will be noticed in the end. And we'll get there. They knew that the way of God's kingdom comes through suffering and refinement. They knew that the greatest issue in life, the greatest issue in life isn't, isn't pursuing earthly benefits. The greatest issue in life isn't pursuing comfort wherever we can get it, acclaim, success. The greatest issue in life is pursuing Christ all the way to the end. Could the same be said about our own lives? So how could they do this? How could they endure to the end? Well, it's in this last thing that we need to see from Daniel. The last thing we need to see in the book, in Daniel 11, 36 through 24, is that our hope in this life is the life to come. Our hope in this life is the life to come. The very reason they can stand firm, take action, and endure to the end. But there's some controversy before we get there. The big question really in this passage is who's the king in verse 36? Most agree that verse 40 and on begins to talk about the end times, but what about verses 36 through 39? What, what, who, who is that? Some say it refers to Antiochus and it makes a lot of sense. Um, the language favors that. You know, we never hear of Antiochus's end. The following images relate to him, but they're not nearly as specific as what came before. Everything else was very specific. Others think it relates to a figure far removed from Antiochus. That here, we begin to see a description of an end time sort of a ruler. And this section, it continues on to 12.4, which talks about the resurrection, so it makes sense that we're beginning to approach the end, the end of time. And I think some of the confusion comes from how biblical prophecy actually works. Often what happens is they take the worst or the best figure, and that figure becomes an anchor point to talk about something that's coming ahead. All right, so Antiochus himself, the reason it sounds like Antiochus is because Antiochus himself is a model of this final king to come, this final antichrist to come, this final person who is, takes action against the covenant of God. And, you know, this section even it mirrors the previous section, talking about Antiochus. You have Antiochus, rise to power, conflict with the north and the south. You have some people that compromise, and then a word to the wise. And really, 36 through 12.4 follows that, a similar pattern. Again, Matthew 24, we're not going to jump there, but the, it similarly uses this dual fulfillment, sort of a characteristic. It looks at the fall of Jerusalem, which comes in AD 70. But it uses that as an anchor point to talk about the end of the world, the end of all things. Matthew's even going to look back at Antiochus as, as a model of this future Antichrist to come. So this is kind of how this biblical prophecy works and how this passage is working, how it's transitioning us to not just look at what's to come with Antiochus, but to look to the very end, to look where, as Daniel has asked over and over, what's to become, what's to come of my people pushes us to the end. Verses 36 through 39, they tell us a little bit about this end time sort of ruler. He'll act according to his own will, similar to the kings before. He'll exalt himself above every god. 
He'll prosper until the indignation is accomplished. You might, that kind of sounds like even, that even kind of sounds like Nebuchadnezzar from chapter four, prosper until the indignation and then he falls. Verses 30, 38 and 39, he'll honor the God of fortress. He'll be a man of war. Verse 39, he will greatly reward those who serve him. He'll entice them to serve him by giving them power and honor and acclaim. Then with verse 30, with verse 40, we start to hear about some of this end times antichrist conquest and his fall. The north and the south, they rage again. And this king passes over all of them. Verse 41, he comes into the glorious land that is Israel. He kills tens of thousands, but some tribes escape. What's one, what, what the emphasis, what's being drawn out, why they talk about the glorious land and all this stuff is because these tribes throughout biblical scripture are actually um, described as evil people, enemies of God. So as this, as this end times king covers the land in war, the evil escape, though the people of God are killed by the tens and the thousands. And then verse 42 and 43, the great nation of Egypt itself will be conquered and the king will gain much wealth and acclaim. Many will suffer destruction and yet, yet, look at the end of verse 45. Even this greatest tyrant will come to his end with none to help. But it's not the end of the story. Thank goodness. The credits haven't started rolling. So read with me Daniel 12, one through four. I'm gonna read this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. At the time of the end, there will be intensified trouble, worse than even Antiochus could dream up. But just as trouble intensifies, so does deliverance intensify. Here we have one of the clearest descriptions of resurrection in the Old Testament. This is really, this description of a bodily resurrection is unparalleled in the Old Testament. It includes both the resurrection to life and the resurrection to contempt or condemnation, this double resurrection as it's called. And then look again at the encouragement to the wise, those who are, those who um, uh, come to everlasting life. The ones who put their ultimate trust and allegiance to God, these are the people that didn't, that didn't trust in the powers or the politics of man. These are the people that, that didn't compromise but stood firm. They endured, they pursued righteousness. These are the people that called others to righteousness and holiness. And compared to the darkness of everything that had come before, they're promised to shine like the brightness of the sky and the stars above. You see, our hope in this life is in the life to come. The hope of resurrection provides more to us than just not fearing death. But resurrection, it motivates us to live lives of holiness before God. 
We don't have to get wrapped up in the endless pursuit of power because, because God will make all things new. We don't have to give in to the seductions of our world because something's better is waiting for us. Do you believe that something better is waiting for you? Sin and evil don't have to cause fear because they will be done away with. Peter says it like this in the New Testament. Since all these things are thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, a people in waiting, do you feel like a people in waiting? He says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In the light of resurrection, we can confidently live according to God's kingdom, no matter which kingdom of man may reign. Because only one kingdom promises to be eternal. Now for Daniel, it seemed like a long ways off. Maybe it does for you as well. But we've seen the beginnings of this resurrection, the life to come. Jesus himself is a foretaste of this new hope, this resurrection life. And through his death and resurrection, we've been made new, even as we await the fullness of new life to come. We have been made new even now. Jesus shows us that the way of the kingdom comes through suffering and death, not through worldly powers. And he shows us that that this way of the kingdom promises an eternal life. And if we want to be wise in our own time, we need to see how Jesus promises this, how he shapes this, how he forms this, how he invites us into this sort of life, how he invites us into this assured future. For he is the way, the truth, and the life everlasting. Resurrection is the end that Daniel's been searching for, a kingdom that will not end, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where evil is gone and the world is restored and reconciled. This is the end Daniel has been concerned about. He's been asking about over and over. He's going to ask about it again. (laughs) He's not done asking about it. When is the end going to come? What is it going to look like? When will these things come happen? He longs for it. And it's the ending that we long for as well. That our current struggles and conflict, they won't last forever. For something better awaits. Because this end of time is really just the beginning. So I want to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle. He says, all their life, speaking of the Pevensey kids, in in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is our promised and assured hope and the hope that motivates us each and every day. Will you pray with me? Father, you are the author of life, the author of life everlasting. And in a world of conflict and strife, when we're often tossed about, may we see and know the firm foundation found in you. May our hope in resurrection 
May it motivate us to stand firm, not to compromise our faith, not to compromise in a world and in a situation that seems so overwhelming at times. Lord, may we not put our hope in the tactics or the strategies of this world, but look towards the tactics and the strategies of your kingdom. May we be, may we be people of faithfulness day in and day out. People who pursue your word, who lead others to righteousness, who stand firm for truth. And Father, may we be wise and fear the Lord above all. In Christ I pray, amen.